Hello, welcome to the Gentle Rebel podcast, where we talk about navigating life's harsher edges with a spirit of compassionate creativity. I'm Andy Mort, I'm a songwriter and creativity coach, and I really love exploring the power that gentleness has in changing our world from the inside out in subversive and uh, weird ways. Do you ever feel stretched to the limits? I mean, of course you do, probably. Uh, How do you know when you're at the edge of your capacity? I don't know about you, but sometimes I push myself to the limit and something that would normally inspire me can feel like overwhelming noise. That's one of the signs for me that, okay, I may be pushing a bit hard here. We often spread ourselves right to the edges, don't we? And we squeeze the margin for inspiration um, so that it's unable to breathe and grow in kind of healthy and productive and meaningful ways around our lives. Margin is a characteristic of gentleness. It softens the blow of unwanted change and allows inspiration to flow without overwhelming us. But the world often demands productivity, efficiency and the elimination of waste. And in such a place, there is really no margin for deep and healthy inspiration to to truly grow, to truly land, to to seed itself in ways that, um, you know, we would ideally want it to happen. In this episode, I want to explore uh, what happens to our creative spirit when we live without nurturing the margin, that gap, the space for inspiration uh, to do its thing. And we're going to look at the signs to look out for that tell us, you know, maybe we're a bit too close to the edge here and consider the role of rest um, in life and and look at rest as uh, maybe sort of asking that question of whether it's more than simply the flip side or the opposite of activity and how it can um, help us find that margin for inspiration. You know, inspiration can happen in a sudden burst. It can uh, kind of feel out of control at times when suddenly an idea or or something that we encounter uh, that we weren't expecting sweeps us up in a way that takes us by surprise. This is not always the case with inspiration, but when it happens, it can be difficult to, to deal with, especially when we are, uh, you know, unable to, to kind of, when we don't have the capacity to, to hold that thing, that moment, that, that magic. It might even feel like something uncomfortable and undesirable has been triggered inside of us. You know, a trigger, that, that's a word that we hear a lot in the modern world. A trigger is simply a prompt that causes something to happen. It might be a deliberate part of a physical device like a switch um, you know like on a kettle or something Uh, or it might be harder to spot like sensory stimulation such as um, when we taste something or smell or uh, see something or hear something or feel something that kind of prompts an unconscious um, or conscious um, memory you know triggers are also actions that that prompt habit forming behaviors for example you know when you get in the car, what do you do automatically? You might sort of put on your seatbelt without thinking or you walk through the front door and that kind of stepping over that divide between the outside and the inside might be a trigger for taking off your shoes or uh, opening a beer or something like that. We experience triggers all of the time. They're fundamental, um, a fundamental part of how we essentially function as human beings. You know, habits creative inspiration, our relationships um, are, are kind of just all, all of this, this stuff that we rely on triggers to help us know how to put our, our next foot forwards, you know, both literally and metaphorically. Um, and that's, that, that's kind of the, the part, a big part of that process. 
So what happens when we experience inspiration as a trigger? Rather than simply triggering a return to the memory or a scar from a past trauma, an inspiration trigger might actually take us to a potentially new possibility, a dream for the future, a point of yearning, nostalgia, homesickness for somewhere we may be connected with in the past or even a place that doesn't really exist. Inspiration can be painful because it can sweep us up like a wave that we cannot fully control or grasp. You can't hold it. You know, try grabbing water. Uh, In a wave, it just flows into, through and away from us. It goes through the fingers. It might trip us over. It might take us off our feet. It might leave us twisted and turned upside down. It can feel discombobulating if we get too much too fast and we're not equipped to respond. We're not prepared for it. We're not ready. In this sense, inspiration doesn't always feel like a positive experience. It can take our breath away. It can leave us exhausted and conjure some feelings that we'd rather not confront. If we aren't aware of what's happening beneath the surface, we might overlook the difference between being inspired and feeling inspired. If we can catch those moments where we are inspired but don't feel it, we can nurture the conditions for ideas and sparks to take root in the future without cutting ourselves off from them completely. If you experience them in that moment where it's like you are inspired but don't feel inspired or you feel overwhelmed, you might run away from that thing, whether it's an idea or an encounter with a piece of uh, like art or whatever it is, sometimes we can be inspired while feeling anything but. In fact, we might feel the opposite. We might feel annoyed. We might feel overwhelmed, scared or sad as part of an, an inspiration in-breath. And as time goes on, we find the positive charge of the inspiration if we allow it to still exist, which becomes clear as we work through those initial uh, reactions, those initial emotions. Just think about what moves us to respond creatively to the world. It's often the same thing that might cause us to feel sad or hopeless, which is why creativity is such an important part of the inspiratory system. It gives a positive way to process and to express the things that trigger something inside of us. You know, that trigger, that involuntary reaction. If we want to live deeply creative lives in sync with our deep sensitivity, then we need to take our relationship with triggers seriously. You know, we can't run from them. We can't turn them off. Otherwise, we just end up switching off a core part of who we are. What we can do, however, is learn to engage with them, to notice, to observe, to relate to them in different ways, to nurture an empowered relationship with them so that we either let them go and walk away We hold them a little longer and see what they want to um, kind of create in us. Like that proverbial kettle, that trigger turning on the switch, like what's boiling inside of us? Is that a thing that we want more of? Is that a thing that's going to bring us something worth exploring? A lot of this is about energy and the margin that we place around our Uh, practices and habits and and generally just in in everyday life do we have enough capacity to get triggered and not have it completely burn us out as in do we have cushioning around our lives that mean that we can afford to get triggered by these different things and still keep moving forwards a lot of us don't a lot of us don't have that cushioning and, and there's good reason for that you know like the world doesn't make it easy to um, to bring the margin, to bring the rest, to bring 
the uh, the cushioning around things we're pushed to the limits as i said we're taught to fill all the space to fit things into the margins not to allow those margins to be and to utilize every last bit of space to eliminate what we perceive to be waste but is actually anything but waste some of these ideas were triggered by a discussion that we had recently in the haven about whether or not we might get triggered by inspiration And if that can feel like a negative thing when you're inspired, whether there is this sort of woolly middle area where actually being inspired can feel um, not very nice, essentially, with heaviness and overwhelm taking us over after encountering something that is stimulating, inspiring, even enjoyable. Um, And so we were exploring, we were looking at a a post on Instagram where Dr. Suzanne uh, Wolf talked about Um, what to look out for when recognizing emotional reactivity uh, to external stimulation. And and her post talks about noticing signs that you might be triggered um, and then like potential causes of heightened emotional reactivity and how to to cope, how to respond uh, when it happens. Um, And and I like this this idea of like just assuming it is going to happen. And so that is the, the, the kind of foundation on which we build. The question was whether this can happen with positive triggers as well. You know, what are the signs that we may be triggered by inspiration or uh, inner shine? Um, Why might we experience that shift? What might we do with that feeling? Can we enjoy it? Can we use it? Can we live from within it? How do we um, absorb that, that kind of emotional overwhelm if we experience it in relation to inspiration? Because I know that so many of us, um, have that sort of the heightened emotional response to things that are um, that are good that are that make thing make life meaningful and that kind of thing. So it's uh, knowing and and absorbing that. How do we do that? So the signs that uh, Suzanne Wolf uh, refers to in that post um, that you might be triggered are things like sudden physical changes, so increased heart rate, fast breathing, muscle tension, stomach clenches, feelings of tightness in the chest, uh, nausea. Uh, sudden cognitive changes, like confusion, overwhelm, irritation, indecisiveness, distractedness, unresponsiveness. Sudden emotional changes like fear, frustration, anxiety, despair, sadness, uh, grief, yearning. Uh, sudden behavioral changes, becoming argumentative, alarmed, alert, lashing out, giving up, uh, withdrawal, procrastination, agitation, uh, shutting down, blaming others. Uh, restlessness and sudden irritation by seemingly unrelated things Uh, so like basically sensory experience touch noise sound uh, other people textures scenery uh, places these these things uh, uh, give create this irritation in you and they they sound like signs of an overwhelmingly negative uh, situation don't they at times but the responses don't necessarily distinguish between positive and negative stimulation you might recognize some of them occurring at times when you're positively stimulated or stirred. I know I do. Uh, there's a fine line between excitement and fear. And I wonder if for some people, it's why we learn maybe not to get too excited about things or we avoid things that actually we really, really love because it, we don't know how to deal with that, that sense of um, the, the reaction in us that is the same when it's something we really want and something that we really don't want. And when reading um, that list, my mind returned to memories of when I was uh, when I was a teenager. I was playing gigs as a as a drummer in 
um, my band, there were a couple of different bands, and we, we would do these Battle of the Bands competitions. Big thing in the 90s. Terrible concept, in my opinion now. Um, so like there'd be a whole bunch of bands, loads of bands. They'd do two or three songs each, and then um, the results would either be judged by a panel, so the winner would be selected by like a panel of three or four um, industry experts, so-called, uh, or it would be like a voting thing. So the the audience would vote. And that, that was always a nightmare because it was basically a popularity contest. Whoever could bring the most people won, essentially. Um, but because there were so many bands playing at these things, they were, they were often very, very busy. Um, loads and loads of people. It was an absolutely terrifying thrill. Um, I used to really like they they were the highlight of my um year like we used to do probably there was usually one or two a year um and in the run up to these things i was i was always beside myself with uh, with different symptoms you know walking the tightrope between that excitement and panic I actually loved it but i hated it at the same time you know before going on stage there's this thrill but also the question like why why the hell am i doing this um i would be irritable i could be like unable to focus difficult to be around because I wouldn't be able to listen to anything anyone around me was saying like my mind was not was not tuned into uh things I was tuned into that sort of I guess the stress the excitement the uh the terror and and these events were hugely meaningful to me I absolutely loved them but if you were to analyze my behavior you could make the case for me being in a state of psychological distress and without the the right kind of nurturing the aliveness that i felt would have been discouraged by others uh, and avoided by me um if i wasn't able to recognize okay this this panic this fear this terror is not telling me about something that i i don't want it's not telling me to run away from this thing or the thing that is actually creating this the source of this feeling is not something i want to run away from um, so I needed pushing towards it by other people, um, because even though I enjoyed performing, the heightened state of emotion probably wasn't something I was like, yeah, I'm going to go into that. That's great. I love that feeling. Um, but I loved what that feeling was sort of taking me towards. It was a symptom of something meaningful. It was telling me about something that really, really mattered to me. So it was important that I understood that feeling or came to understand um, that that feeling wasn't something to avoid this takes us to the second question in that set of three that Suzanne uh, Wolf lays out which is why am I emotionally reactive so this is not not an easy one to do in the moment because I guess we're not always great at naming emotions we're not always great at naming exactly what it is that we feel especially at the moment that we're feeling it but it essentially encourages us to think about the emotional source of these symptoms you know Dr Wolf's Host says things like, uh, I felt dismissed, I felt ignored, attacked, afraid, insulted, manipulated, humiliated, excluded, offended, betrayed, alone, ashamed. So these are, you know, this is why am I emotionally reactive? This is, I've just come out of this heightened situation where I felt this thing. Um, and so thinking about it from this inspiratory perspective, there are going to be times where we might experience those signs and it be because, you know, I felt uncomfortable. I felt excited. I felt anxious. I felt moved. I felt sad. I felt angry. I felt concerned. I felt connected. I felt stressed. I felt disappointed. And again, these things are 
uh, often catalysts for creativity. They're often catalysts for connection, for, for us to notice these things in the world around us or inside of us that actually really, really matter. Um, and so it's important to listen to that and to know what it's saying rather than simply to say, I felt that thing and I need to shut that down. I need to avoid feeling that because actually these feelings can be, uh, they're not always, but they can be um, like part of that inspiratory system, part of what moves us to uh, to bring more creative spirit into our lives. And then the third part of this triggering trio is how to cope when feeling triggered. Um, we looked at it from the perspective of how to enjoy, how to turn inspiration into rhythm when feeling inspired. And, and so that original post says, you know, remove your attention from the external thing and focus on yourself. Name the thoughts and feelings you're experiencing. Notice where you feel these emotions in your body. Observe how your body is reacting. Say something compassionate and reassuring to yourself. Have some physical actions um, that you can take, like deep breathing, journaling, movement talking with someone whatever it might be that kind of helps you to process um, process those moments again these are good for any situation desirable or undesirable when a stress response is triggered removing ourselves from the tangle of thoughts and feelings so that we can observe them and uh, notice the bodily response instead this is a powerful thing to train ourselves to do so that we're not identifying with those reactions but we're allowing them to flow through us. We're noticing them, we're observing them, but we're yielding to them. We might be tempted to try and eradicate the triggers, be it the situation that gave rise to the feeling or even the feeling itself. But what if these are actually a solution rather than a problem? What if they can bridge us towards a deeper relationship with our own creativity, with our own um, voice? There's something powerful about building margin into our lives so that we can experience triggers without getting overwhelmed and burned out and derailed in some way. Um, or should I say margin to absorb the, those things if and when they happen. So when we, when we experience the triggers, being able to absorb them in some way and respond to them in a way that we um, both want to choose in the moment, but also have, have chosen the, the kind of the way that we want to approach them uh, at a moment where we're not feeling that, when we're not in that, we've sort of decided, okay, when I do feel that, this is how I want to respond to it. We need to be in a position where we have the capacity to observe and to hold this stuff. Otherwise, it, it, it just feels completely overwhelming. It feels so heavy, even good triggers. You know, if I'm not in a place to feel inspired because my tank is empty or my to-do list is full, I can feel completely burned out by encountering something that is deeply inspiring, be it a piece of art, a, an idea or something that I would find otherwise really fascinating, something that I would be like, yeah, this is amazing. It might trigger all kinds of emotional responses about my own inadequacies, my finitude or the state of the world. I might actually kind of turn the, the joy into a resentment of that thing that is inspiring. And in this context of inspiration, I think there's a common thread which is of margin and rest. And that's what I want to spend the rest of this episode thinking about, these key aspects of bringing that ability to absorb, that ability to respond to the triggers of all kinds in the ways that we want to choose to do so. 
again, I'm going to say something maybe slightly controversial now. Um, I don't know how you feel about writing um, on the pages of printed books. I know some people um, are fine with it, but some people hate it. Personally, I love it. I love going back and seeing how I engaged with a book that I read um, at some point in the past. You know, what was triggered in me as I was reading this? What was I thinking about at the time? And those kinds of things. Evident in what I've written in the margins on the edges of the pages. So many times I'm going to be thinking as I go back and, you know, look at what the notes that I've written in those margins. Oh, wow. I have no idea what that means. <laughs> I have no idea what was going on in my head as I wrote that in the margin. Um, I know for sure that when I wrote the original note, it made complete sense to me to the point where I would have assumed that, you know, if I'd popped that thought on social media, everybody should know what I meant. And the fact that even future me doesn't know what it meant is a good reminder, I think, to put space between um, between our thoughts and our tweets. Um, you know, sometimes something makes complete sense in our mind at the moment um, that we that we have the thought and it feels coherent. It feels complete. But yeah, when you come back to it or when somebody encounters it because you've decided to tweet it, it's like no, that doesn't. What 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 do you actually mean? What's the context of that thought? What or what's the context of that idea? You know, the thought context. What's going on within your mind to give rise to that? Um, and so margins. Um, I've been kind of thinking about why. So margins as a metaphor, um, and I'm maybe going to labour this a little bit. But why do margins matter? Uh, margins help us focus and see more clearly you know the space around the page brings our focus to the words and when it's simply designed on a page engagement feels like a joy it doesn't feel like a chore when you're not having to work to actually read the words on a page it's the margins that give rise to that it's the space around the words Margins give us somewhere to hold without leaving grubby finger marks all over the text, or it gives other people somewhere to hold without kind of smudging our uh, our words. You know, when you pick up a page or a book, you want the words protected from those finger smears. A margin keeps the good stuff away from where the fingers might naturally just sort of reach in order to pick the thing up um, or hold the thing. So there's, uh, yeah, there's no inadvertent or accidental uh, smudging or just like grubby marks from the outside world. Uh, margins give us a cushion for triggering. So they give us somewhere to write our thoughts, as I just mentioned, you know, that where like if you're sort of reading some, something is triggered in you as you're reading a certain line, you know, you can use the margin to, to just d jot down a little thought that you've had in relation to that. And it's kind of there in, near the scene of the inspiration so that, it's not sort of disconnected. It's not written down somewhere else, but it's, it's there engaging, interacting with that thing. And so uh, this enables us to, to maybe untangle something that's been triggered in our mind or our body at that moment. Margins give us cushion for bleed. You know, when printing things, um, we can slip. Can't, like the, a printer slips. Like when, if you ever go and get something properly printed, you, you will always have bleed margin. Uh, where it's like, don't put anything important in the margins because there's a chance that it won't get printed or it will just be cut off slightly. 
Um, and it's the same for us. We might feel slightly off color or uh, going through challenging circumstances. And so, you know, I was thinking about this in terms of like habits and routines and things that we do regularly. Um, if we're not attempting to print life right to the edge, we have the margin for things to go a little bit wrong, for things to, you know, be a bit different from normal and for it to still be okay. Margins make writing more comfortable. You know, margins on a notepad, like, or in a notebook, if you're not having to write right up to the edge, your hand has somewhere to to sit. You're not having to sort of, I don't know, squeeze, you're not falling off the edge of the page. I don't really know how to put that (laughs) in a, in a way that makes full sense, but hopefully you know what I mean. Um, And margins mean that if the page gets nibbled, the writing is still intact. Um, again, it's like similar to the grubby finger thing, but there's this protective element, this boundary around it. The edges of the pages could get nibbled by rats and mites and margins mean that even if that happens or when that happens, because it's probably going to happen, uh, especially if we're using that as a metaphor for the, the rats and mites of life, um, then there's protection around the core. There's a protection Um, And margins allow holes to be punched without impacting what you see. You know, again, like we might get holes punched in us so that we're easier to store. We're like, you know, you can put us in files, you can put us in boxes. Um, But margins allow that to happen without it changing the the core of of the words, without it affecting what you see um, on the actual content part of the page. Um, so without those margins, the holes just cut straight through the heart of the words. <laughs> um, there we go. Uh, I love dragging out a metaphor, as you know, if you've been listening for a while. Um, and I like that one because it kind of speaks to something that is really missing in so much of our world right now, which is this healthy relationship with rest. We think of this idea of margins, the space around the edges. We can find them everywhere, not just around the outside of the page, but woven into and through the page itself. The words on the page are defined less by the mark that they make and more by the plethora of space around them that holds them. We can see them not because they're there, but because of everything that is not there. Definition is only possible because of space, because of stillness, because of silence. This is one of those things that we've all heard probably quite a lot and we all know at some level and has perhaps you know lost its meaning at times or is maybe just really tough in a world where there is very little margin or very little encouragement for these things to be or to be taken seriously not least because of how we experience things now we can see everything everywhere all of the time when one person's message ends, another one starts. I don't know if you've ever had one of those moments scrolling through something like Instagram and the algorithm manages to compile a feed of very similar posts by different people. Say, for example, you know, videos and memes and quotes on um, some topic or like self-care or something like that. And it all becomes like just overwhelming it run everything bleeds from one into the next there's no margin there's no space there's no stillness there's no rest and if you have the sound on it's jarring you jump without margin and everything becomes this this complete overwhelming noise and this reminds us that rest is not one side of a binary divide the problem here isn't that you know when that's happening on instagram i need to uh, just you know I'm, I'm a bit tired out i need to put my phone down get some rest come back and i can start again later and it'll be okay 
Now, the issue is it's actually based, baked into that moment itself, into that experience where there is no rest, there's no space, there's no margin, and there's no definition within the, the proverbial page, whatever that page is, whether it's an Instagram feed or, um, you know, your routine, your schedule for the day or whatever. It's like this big block of tiny text with no perceptible gaps. And when there are no gaps, you just can't see any definition. You don't know what you're supposed to um, kind of get a foothold in. What you're sp- there's, there's no value in that, um, in a sense. And we looked at rest uh, in a recent Haven Cotter session, um, which is it's a part of the inspiratory system that um, a lot of people found kind of most challenging or missing for them in life. Um, and we explored it thanks to, to Kelly for um, kind of putting the session um, together through this lens of Sandra Dalton Smith's book, Sacred Rest, uh, Recover Your Life, Renew Your Energy and Restore Your Sanity, uh, which is kind of based on this idea that we've become fixed on this sense that rest equals sleep. And as such, we've overlooked a whole bunch of other sources of rest that can energize, inspire and galvanize us in life. And so as such, we're, we're running a huge rest deficit as individuals and as society because we've given over to this binary view of rest where it becomes the opposite side of work or the opposite side of activity or the opposite side of action Um, or it's the thing that we do at night to compensate for the energy that we spend in the day and actually rest is not an opposite to action it's the most important part of action it's also something that we struggle to hold because we so desperately want to control it And rest occurs when we relinquish control. When we force or try to rest, we almost always fail to rest. It's something we find through the way that we design everything else. A restful experience starts with the way we design the point of the experience. It's like that letter on the page. That's the bit that you design. But what gives that thing definition is the space around it. And so Sandra Dalton-Smith talks about seven types of rest that give us a sense of soul freedom. Um, And in no particular order, these are physical rest. So our body needs rest from movement. And there's two types of physical rest. There's passive rest, which comes in the form of uh, sleeping or napping. And then there's active rest where we uh, stretch, go for a gentle walk, perform deep breathing, small acts of motion and um, practice a good pre-sleep routine um, and I f- it, it suggests that active rest is, is kind of gentle exertion obviously resting from movement is this idea but I wonder if we can get physical rest uh, weirdly maybe paradoxically from more vigorous and intense exercise as well you know for me it can be intrinsically linked to deep rest after an intense walk a, a run or an exhausting gym workout actually my body needs to to kind of get this get going in a in a kind of quite intense way so that it can rest um it's not restful in the moment but the deep breathing the satisfaction the release of all of those hormones and chemicals as well that lead to a deeper sleep and so on these are all part of a system of rest that transcends the appearance of things it doesn't look restful but it is Uh, also when i think about movement as rest i'm mindful of the experience as restful you know in my mind the gym is a restful place, weirdly. It might not be for many people, but for me it is. It has this restorative, this energizing atmosphere. It's an environment that is uh, this cool and spacious and 
it just it feels really generative. I feel good when I walk in. So rest is not just about what we do, it's about how and where we do it. The second type of soul freeing rest is mental rest. Our mind needs a reprieve from thinking. And so Dalton Smith focuses on quietening the mind and avoiding mental clutter like self-criticism, ruminating and thinking about what ifs and so on. The classic go-to examples of this are are things like meditation and mindfulness, obviously, uh, which if they work for you um, for this particular purpose, then, then great. But I know many people for whom these activities and they they don't create rest for them. They actually create like a, a kind of a tension, a bit of a, ah, I can't do it properly, that sort of feeling, especially if you're sort of a bit perfectionistic. Um, but rather mental rest comes from engaging with things that help our minds think in more restful ways. Uh, that's, that's the way that I kind of am coming to think of it, you know. So for me, like reading, um, playing music, writing, playing golf, um, I know people find things like gardening and cooking and uh, other sort of chores as well they're all all ways to find mental rest by opening channels for the mind to be active without force or control we need different types of mental rest at different times as well so it's, it's about noticing what's going on what have i got too much of what do i need right now and the third type of soul freeing rest is emotional rest this idea that um emotions need a release Dalton Smith says that many of us are skilled at hiding, even when we want to be found. It's massively draining to conceal who we are from the world. And so emotional rest is a moment of integrity in the sense of integrating who we are inside with how we are outside. What this looks like in practice is probably slightly difficult to define. Um, Dalton Smith talks about uh, authenticity, living according to core values, desires, strengths and weaknesses. It's another type of exhausting rest at times, which might include um, professional therapeutic support. It might mean difficult conversations to express a genuine need to hold important boundaries. And it's about building practices that allow emotions to flow through us rather than uh, getting blocked before they get expressed. So this kind of whether we're hiding behind a brick wall that we create for ourselves this type of rest is going to look different for for all of us at different times. You know, there might be a moment where this is kind of an exhausting, to get to this rest, you have to do something exhausting. Um, You know, what we need to get in place to express or to overcome right now is not necessarily something that's going to be there for long, but it might be something that needs doing so that we get to that place of rest. I guess it can be thought of like a, a weight or a burden that we're lugging around. And so the rest is finding some way to put that down what is it that's creating this huge weight upon our shoulders right now what would laying it down look like that gives us the the clue to the source of our emotional rest or to the the way our emotional rest might happen the fourth type of soul freeing rest is spiritual so our desire for spirituality needs to be fulfilled obviously the word spiritual means different things to different people as well um in essence i think we're talking about connection to something bigger or deeper or beyond our uh, kind of immediate physical and mental state of being it might be plugged into the story of humankind or our place in the universe in a meaningful way contributing to something being involved in community any practice that helps us uh, kind of raise our awareness that we are part of something more than our own 
um, kind of immediate subjective experience. And so the rest comes from the sense of belonging that comes from transcending the desire to fit in um, and that sort of seeing everything through that kind of egoic lens and to come to a place where we understand that we belong simply by virtue of the fact that we are here. That's my own interpretation of spiritual or my own definition of spiritual anyway. Um, you're going to have your own way of describing that word. If it's not a helpful word, it, it might be one of those sort of triggering words that actually is horrible to you. If that's the case, then switch it out for, an, for a word that is helpful, that kind of describes what I'm trying to get at there, what I'm um, sort of describing there. Then the fifth type of sulfuring rest is sensory rest. Um, highly sensitive people are probably going to recognize this one. Our senses yearn to be quieted. Uh, this really speaks to the idea of rest being silence and stillness and space around the notes, the letters, the brush strokes. And I'm sure it's going to speak to a lot of people listening to this because it's about creating conditions for our senses to truly engage with and enjoy the world. Oh, how much we are bombarded by noise and clutter. We can become over aroused by sensory input and we can become desensitized by the, the quantity of data flying into our sensory receptors. And I guess there are a few aspects to this. There's the conscious and the subconscious sensory awareness. There are practices we can use as a proactive way to rest the senses like, you know, breaks from technology, turning night mode on on screens, um, hanging out in a dark room for a few minutes turning off notifications on our electronic devices. These help us regulate our senses bef before they are frazzled and in an overt sense or obvious need of rest. There are things like keeping background noise as low as you can, wearing comfortable clothes and so on. And we can feed our senses with good things as well. I think this is where that kind of the sense of rest as being the space around something beautiful that we define comes in it's not just about lowering our stimulation or removing stimulation but it's about um, giving our senses stuff that we love otherwise we're in that kind of binary position again where we're thinking about it as consumption of unwanted stuff versus taking a break from that thing but what if sensory rest was about uh, bringing more stuff bringing um, giving our senses a rest from the input we don't want but giving it something nice something that we do want you know rest is not just about deprivation from the unwanted it's about letting in the things that that bring us meaning and joy the the inspiration part um certain sounds certain smells certain tastes textures sights resensitizing what makes life meaningful what's what makes life worth living so sixth up in the soul freeing rest list is social rest our need for connection longs to be met and this has many crossovers with emotional rest as well. And Dalton Smith says that uh, we often face the issue that our social reach exceeds our social capacity. However, in the presence of a trusted confidant, an atmosphere of rest is created. Their expressions of acceptance, understanding and compassion become needed nourishment to conquer loneliness. Now, obviously, not all social experience is created equally. Uh, we know that this is as introverts and sensitive people. There are some people in whose presence we find restorative energy, while other people are what we might describe as energy vampires. They have the ability to suck all the energy from our soul without even necessarily doing anything. So when thinking about social rest, it's important to have close relationships that are a good balance of give and take where we're contributing to the partnership. Again, it might be that for a lot of 
gentle rebels, they find themselves in lopsided relationships where because maybe they're a good listener or uh, a conscientious friend or whatever, they're relied on by the other person who, who takes but very rarely gives. Notice how you feel after social connection with different people. Does it feel safe to share your struggles, your triumphs? Can you be real? Or is that kind of discouraged or maybe not encouraged? If you're unable to be yourself and you feel that sense of hiding that we talked about um, with emotional rest, that that's draining you, then this is not a good source of social rest. It might require a conversation and a, a redefining of the relationship so that it can become a source of rest, or it might require some boundaries so that it's allowed to be whatever it is. And then you kind of acknowledge, okay, it's important to me to maintain this connection, but it's costing me something. So it's not a source of social rest. I need to find that elsewhere. Um, or it might be that the relationship just needs terminating, harsh as that sounds. If it's not kind of giving, contributing to anything, whether it's, you know, like your positive vision and, and your core values, it like it's taking away from other things as well that you'd be better off investing that energy in. Um, and so it's about assessing, okay, w- why is this meaningful to me? Why is this worth my time? If it's not, okay, let's rethink this. And then the final source of soul freeing rest is, is creative rest. The idea that our soul craves to soak in the beauty around us. This again is going to mean different things to everybody really, but creativity requires time. It requires us to keep the margins open so that connections can be made. The lines can be drawn between dots around our minds. We can find this kind of rest when we find environments that allow our creative spirit to grow to flow where do you experience that creative freedom not as the act of creating but as the nurturing of that spirit of creativity where you feel the world through expansion and potential rather than contraction dogma rules demands it's a place where everything has a kind of simplicity to it you can observe without judgment notice what you notice allow everything to flow through you for a moment No notebook to write stuff down, no camera to capture it, no instrument, just you. Like the whirlpool in the river, the water flows through it. The water is not the same, but the whirlpool is still present, not resisting. Rest is not the flip side of action. It's not simply a thing we do. It's baked into the way that we do. I was thinking about the way we turn restful activities into non-restful things i think it's an and again an outcome of our relationship with life you know everything through the lens of achievement productivity and purpose so we think i've i've got to make this make rest legitimate so we turn it into something that we do something that we measure something that we can get right or wrong something that we beat ourselves up about um and I, like i was thinking about reading as a good example of this um in her book the art of rest claudia hammond points to reading as one of the most fundamental sources of rest, um, according to the rest test. Um, the, and, and how often do we see even something that, like, like that, something that gives us a great, um, a great breath of rest, turned into something like a, a non-restful pursuit? You know, we might start the year and think, right, I'm going to read 50 books this year. 
<laughs> and or, and we often turn sources of rest like meditation and mindfulness into a productive experience we measure it we compare ourselves to others we judge ourselves based on an ever-growing list of complex measures am i doing it right i've got to do this many by this time um i want to like this this form of rest is important therefore i need to uh, do it 40 times before <laughs> whatever um and this can sometimes be the distraction that we need to never truly engage with rest we're so quick to to intellectualize to gamify to analyze everything we weigh the merits of one type of rest against another and there's always another one to weigh up and so we we end up thinking ourselves away from rest itself thinking well i'm going to get there as soon as i've you know found the perfect way to do this i'm going to be able to you know rest but sometimes we just need to get out of our own way play another example of a source of rest that has value only in so much as we don't try to control it. It becomes precisely unrestful when we make it dogmatic, when we make it outcome-oriented. Creativity loses its restful rewards when it moves into the realm of productivity. This is not to say we shouldn't aim for and enjoy outcomes or measure things within those realms. Rather, this is about rest, and if we want to bring more rest into our lives, which is clear from every study that tells us how chronically rest deprived we are we need to somehow unwed our relationship with rest from the pressure to do rest to measure rest uh, to see it as something that is only valuable in so much as as it fuels our output or in so much as somebody can say yes I, i can see you've ticked off your rest for today it's about bringing that infusion into everything we're not machines Rest is what makes everything meaningful. It's the rest between the notes, the rest around the letters, the rest as we look up, look forwards, observe, notice, flow. We don't rest in order to do anything. We rest because we're human. This kind of rest is not about doing rest. It's about understanding that rest is enabled or inhibited by the margins of everything we do. Margins are what give us the ability to absorb, to enjoy, to experience inspiration from the world around us. Rest is the bedrock of life. Margin gives us what we need in order to give space to those triggers that can just fire us up at any moment. If we're working to the margins, then we have no capacity for that inspiration. Inspiration then becomes an overwhelming tsunami that throws everything into chaos where we have no capacity for it. We're unreceptive to what that small voice within is saying. We don't listen to our bodies. We don't listen to anything around us. And we're at the whims of the busy monster. Margin is a vulnerable thing to design our lives around. It's questioned, it's frowned upon, it's destroyed by those who have none themselves, but it's vital, not just for the sake of our own physical, mental and emotional well-being, but also for the sake of humanity, for the sake of the world as a whole. Without it, we just keep pushing, 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 going through cycles of boom and bust where we work ourselves to burnout. We see rest as the opposite of or the reward for action rather than a fundamental rhythm within healthy forward movement it's part of how we observe how we become aware of the impact that we're making as we go the impact of the thing we're doing on us as we go and how we iterate how we change things as we go i want to finish this episode with a short meditation on rest that i created as part of the inspiratory system in the haven 
all nine meditations, I did one for each part of that inspiratory system that we explored in the previous episode. They're all available uh, in the Haven. If you want to uh, kind of access them all, you can go to the haven.co and join me in the community there. Um, but yeah, I just want to share this with you um, as a way to, to kind of move you from listening to this episode uh, as you go about your day. Um, and I'd love to hear any thoughts that you have on anything that I've kind of touched on in this episode. Uh, please leave a comment on the website, um, and and find this episode there. Or send me an email uh, through the contact form on the website. Until next time, remember that even when it appears not to be, gentleness is always an option. Take care. Bye-bye. One of the most commonly overlooked aspects of our inspiratory system is rest. Society's obsession with productivity and busyness can actually cause us to be less productive and less effective at times, especially when it comes at the price of our well-being. When we are well-rested, we're in a better position to notice and to respond to inspiration around us and within us. Our minds become clearer. Our sense of urgency and busyness has a bigger bubble around it to absorb, to notice, to observe and to respond. Take a few deep breaths. Open yourself up to reimagining the possibilities. Invite inspiration as you breathe in. Hold space for a new way of being as you breathe out. Breathe in. Breathe out. What does a rest-filled life look like? Imagine things are as you would love them to be. Picture yourself getting enough sleep, easing your way into the day with a sense of expansion and abundance. No more rushing than is required. How does rest make you feel? What does rest open up for you? Picture yourself in a moment of struggle where you just can't seem to make a breakthrough, solve the problem or figure out what you need to do next. Imagine yourself standing up and walking into the next room. It's a room of rest. Where for 30 minutes you'll give yourself some time to recharge. To pause. 
to hold space in solitude where you can breathe again, focus your mind, clear your thoughts. What does this room look like? What's in it? What do you do during this time of rest? Notice how it's impacting your mind. What is it clearing? What are you able to let go of? Spend some time in this room feeling the stillness of inspiration flow through your body as you allow your body to pause for a moment. Slow down as you move or look around this room. Allow your eyes to soften. Surrender yourself to the safe arms that are holding you in this place. Say yes to this invitation, this opportunity to rest. Explore this scene. Write it. Paint it. Imagine it. What is changing in you? What is changing around you? Who are you becoming?